Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Sean is out of town this week, but he did want, he did want me to mention the outreach bulletins, that, the sheets that are in your bulletin. And please continue to prayerfully consider how you might serve. We had a great turnout this week at our first breakfast for the Lehigh School football team. And thank you to the workers that came. Uh, I know that not everyone can serve during that time. So if you would be so led, uh, it costs us about $200, $250 to feed a whole football team, which is a pretty good deal if you think about it. It's big men. Um, but if you'd like to donate a breakfast, that would be the dollar amount for you to cover feeding one, one meal. Uh, we also have a need for workers at our Good News Club on Tuesday afternoons. We have 70 children that are signed up to come hear the gospel every week. The nations are signed up to come and hear the good news from your mouth. And so if you would be so led, please sign up for that. We need at least six more workers. We're down six workers this year. Similarly, our WANA program, which is our Wednesday night children's Bible study program, is in need of workers. Mr. Ashley would like to get a couple of leaders for cubbies and a secretary for the TNT group. Satan absolutely hates it when our children learn the truth of God's Word. And the world hates it when they sit under the teaching of God's Word. And we have an opportunity to personally engage in spiritual warfare and an opportunity to pass the truth on to the next generation by helping our children learn God's Word. So please consider, prayerfully consider, if you could help in any of these ways. And let the office know, and we will get you in touch so that you can help out in these wonderful ways to reach our neighborhood, to reach our young ones, and for the glory of Christ. So Matthew 20. Have you ever seen... Someone get an award for something that they didn't do? Or perhaps get rewarded for something that they didn't really earn? I had that experience in college. I bet you've had a similar experience. I had to work in a, on a group project for a class. Which, whenever I heard those words, group project, it makes me cringe a little bit. I wanted a good grade, but in God's good sovereignty was paired with two people who did not share that ambition for my sanctification and God's glory. So as you can imagine, I ended up doing all the work. And as you can probably imagine, my two uh, comrades were very eager to share in my good grade, even though they didn't do the work. And I ended up resenting them because they got my good grade, even though I did all the work. I really wrestled with going up to the teacher after class and complaining about this injustice. It's just not fair, teacher. It's not fair at all. Well, today our text addresses that feeling of injustice. That feeling of unfairness when we have to work harder, but others seem to profit more. Let's look at our text in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to read the parable of the vineyard workers in verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of our Lord. 
For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And going out again about the sixth and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when he came, and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired around the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired came first, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at their master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Let's pray. Our good God and King, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. That you would edify your church, build up your church. That you would soften hearts. That you would change hearts. That you would redeem your people. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our text begins with a simple word, for which shows us that this parable is meant as an illustration of the statement that precedes it in chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus had previously been speaking with the rich young ruler in chapter 19, the young man who wanted to know how to enter into God's kingdom. Jesus warned his disciples about how riches can pose a great barrier to entering God's kingdom. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into the kingdom of God, Jesus said. And then he followed up that saying by by explaining to them that it is indeed impossible for a man or a woman to enter the kingdom by their own resources, by their own efforts. The only possibility of entering God's kingdom is through his gracious work. In the parable that follows, Jesus is using an earthly story to illustrate truths about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, Jesus often speaks in parables like these, where he tells a normal, typical story, but he adds a twist. And those twists in an ordinary story are the things that we need to pay attention to. The atypical events in an otherwise typical story indicate to us where Jesus is wanting us to make special note. 
And in this story, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. This is an earthly illustration to teach us about the spiritual realm, the kingdom of God, where God sovereignly reigns in righteousness and grace. The landowner possesses a large vineyard for which he needed to hire more laborers. Maintaining a vineyard is hard work, and Jesus' hearers would know that. They had to terrace the land. They had to remove stones from the soil, usually bring in good soil which meant they had to carry it up the terraced slopes. They had to prune the vines and tend to the branches. And then in the fall, they had to harvest the crops, which was tedious work. All this work required extra workers. And it was common for vineyard owners to hire extra help to perform these labor-intensive tasks. These laborers were often unskilled. They were near the bottom of the social and economic food chain. They worked odd jobs, many of which lasted less than a day. They had no guarantee of work beyond what they were hired to do that day. And these men would gather in the marketplace in the mornings, in the early mornings. And the landowners, the managers, the foremen would come and they would hire these laborers as they had need. And because these men were unskilled, they were usually desperate to provide for their families, and they were especially vulnerable to being swindled, to being underpaid for their work, for being taken advantage of. And God knew this. That's why out of the compassion in his heart for the poor and for the oppressed, he put Leviticus 19.13 into Israel's law, which said, you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. In other words, you shall not keep a worker's wages overnight. You need to pay him a fair wage and make sure by the end of the day to have paid him so that he could feed his family. Moses likewise wrote in Deuteronomy 24:15, You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he may not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. The workers are normally hired day to day and they must be paid day to day. So our vineyard owner agrees with the laborers on a fair wage, the rate of one denarius a day, which was the standard wage of a Roman soldier, generously paid for such unskilled labor. The work began around 6 a.m., which they called the first hour. And Jesus goes on to say that at the third hour, or 9 a.m., the owner went back to the marketplace and found others standing idle. And so he generously agrees to hire them and pay them, quote, whatever is right, end quote. So they went to work. And about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, the landowner did the same thing. Then at about the eleventh hour, which would be 5 p.m., an hour before quitting time, he went back to the marketplace again and he found more laborers standing idle. And he said to them, why do you stand here all day idle? No answer is told to us as to why they hadn't been hired. Perhaps they were the least productive laborers, the oldest laborers, 
the weakest workers, men that for some reason or another nobody wanted to hire. So the vineyard owner generously tells the men, you, you too go into the vineyard. And he hires them. The group of laborers that was hired at the 11th hour only had to work one hour, we're told in verse 12. Following the law, the landowner calls his foreman and he says, pull these men together so that we can pay them. But Jesus points out that the landowner makes an unusual command. Here's an interesting twist to which we should pay attention. He tells the foreman to pay the men beginning with the last group hired and working towards the first group hired. He inverts the standard customary order of payment. And here's where things get interesting. The group hired at the 11th hour was called up and they were paid a whole denarius, a whole day's wage. And you can imagine at this point, those men hired at the beginning of the day are getting excited. Wow, they got paid a whole day's wage for working an hour. At that rate, I'm going to get paid 12 days wages for working 12 hours. My ships come in. This is going to be great. But that's not what happened. Each worker received their one denarius. They had been given their due wage, the wage that they had already agreed upon. Indeed, if the first hired workers had been paid according to the customary order, those that were hired first would have been given their denarius and would have went on their merry way and would have been content. They would have been happy. But they didn't. The landowner chose to invert the order and to provide an occasion for all the workers to see the distribution. Isn't it interesting how God will often put us in situations like this in order to expose things in our heart that we did not even know were there? God will put us in situations where we see others get blessed where others get the job, others get praised publicly, others get the attention, others get the spouse, others get whatever it is. He puts us in those situations because He loves us enough not to let us keep our little idols. He wants us to see the little idol of self that reigns in our hearts, and He wants us to topple that idol. He wants us to be focused instead on Him, on His character, on His generosity, on His glory, rather than our own. That's why He'll often put us in these interesting situations, situations where the normal order gets reversed, just like the vineyard owner's seemingly insignificant inversion of the pay order. Then, let's look at verse 11. We see their response. And on receiving it, they grumbled at their master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have paid them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. They play the card that every parent has heard. But that's not fair. We worked all day. They worked an hour. We worked in the middle of the heat of the day. They worked at dusk where the sun was setting. We worked in the blazing sun. Our backs were on fire. We probably got sunburned. They worked in the shade, the cool of the evening, 
They were upset at this perceived injustice and they were demanding equity from the vineyard owner. And the vineyard owner responds in verse 13 to the charges of injustice leveled by the workers. He says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. The vineyard owner addresses the spokesman of the group as friend, which was a term for an acquaintance, not a close friend. But he's letting the workers know firmly but courteously, you're wrong. You are in the wrong. He had not been unjust to them, for as we read in verse 2, they had agreed upon a price. You agreed for, to do a full day's work at the wage of one denarius? That's what I have paid you. Verse 14, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. I can spend my money however I want to spend it, the landowner says. It's not of any concern to you if I give the last worker as much as I give to you. He continues in verse 15 by asserting his sovereignty with a rhetorical question. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? What he decides to do with his money is no business but his own. He could give it more generously to some than to others. That's his prerogative. He could spend it however he chooses because it is his money. He shows that the problem is not unjust spending on his part. The problem was with the envious eyes of the workers. Look at how he finishes verse 15. Or do you begrudge me my generosity? The NIV translates that, Is your eye envious because I am so generous? But I think my favorite is the old King James, who says, Is thine eye evil because I am good? I think that really captures the heart of the issue. The workers weren't merely upset because they were paid an unjust wage. No, their answer shows a deeper issue. The nature of their grumbling showed what kind of men they really were. They did not complain to the landowner saying, you've put us on par with the latecomers. No, they said, you've put them on par with us. Do you see the petty hearts of these laborers? They were so dissatisfied because the ones that were last were made to be first. And they themselves who were first were made to be last. And they hated it. But their sin was multifaceted. Commentator William Hendrickson points out that there are at least three overlapping categories of their sin. First, notice that their discontentment was rooted in a self-righteous spirit. A legal spirit that says, my effort, my works have earned me favor. The envious workers had slipped into a spirit of self-righteousness where they believed that their works were the basis of their standing. And by doing so, they revealed that they had forgotten that grace was the whole reason for their standing to begin with. They had forgotten their former graceless state. Remember, where were they at the beginning of the day? They were in the marketplace without work. No hope for feeding themselves or their families. It was out of the goodness of his heart that the vineyard owner had offered them hope, 
had given them the grace of a job and a way to survive. They had forgotten that it was the grace of the vineyard worker that allowed them to have a job and a fair wage to begin with. Their whole foundation was grace, and they had lost sight of that. And we can do this too. A self-righteous man prides himself on his deeds, imagining that his deeds alone give him claim to God's blessings. We can slip into a legal spirit of self-righteousness where we say to ourselves, or maybe even out loud, look at all the things that I have done. Look at my performance. Look at the money that I've earned. Look at the books that I've read, at the prayers that I have prayed. Look at my fruitfulness. And we think or even say these things, and we begin to believe that we have somehow earned something. I've worked for this company for 20 years. How could they give the promotion to that guy and not to me? I've been studying my tail off for the last six months. How could they get past the entrance exam and not me? I've been praying and tithing and going to church every Sunday for years. How could God let this bad thing happen to me? A legal spirit forgets our former position. That is our position outside of grace. You see, we were all once without hope. We were standing in the marketplace of this world with no means of being able to provide for ourselves. We were destitute, stuck in our sins with no glimmer of righteousness. But God... Our heavenly vineyard owner has come down to the market. He has provided a way for us to be provided for. He has, out of the generosity of his heart, given us entrance into the kingdom of God. Not because we were such great workers. Not because we're such good employees. Not because we're so wonderful and such holy people. He has hired us knowing full well the bitter, petty, covetous, envious hearts that are within us. And he has provided entrance into the kingdom of heaven anyway. That's the good news of our great God. That while we were yet in our sins, he has provided a way for us to be forgiven. His son came, born under the law, but possessing no legal spirit. Jesus was a man of perfect stature and position. And gave it up so that he could come to us. That he could come to us. He became as one of the laborers in the market. But unlike the laborers in the market, there was not any hint of envy or bitterness. He never once complained to God that this is unfair, that the other men around him were getting something better than they should have. In fact, he was the only man in history who went through his trials and could say to God, I don't deserve this. I deserve better. But he did not complain. In fact, because of his love for you, he kept silent. The Bible says that rather than complaints about injustice, Jesus instead was like a sheep, silent before its shearers. That is his great love for you. That although you often have a self-righteous spirit, he remained humble in your place. Although you complain, he remained silent and bore the punishment in your place. Although you refuse to be last and we clamor to be first, he himself was made last so that you might be treated as first. That is our great Christ. And remember, remember his work on your behalf in your moments of self-righteousness and allow his humility to reign in your hearts and topple 
the idol of self. Second, not only were the discontented laborers guilty of having a self-righteous spirit, a spirit that forgot their previously graceless state, they were also guilty of failing to recognize the rights of the landowner. They were guilty of failing to recognize the rights of the landowner. The landowner says in verse 15, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The owner paid the full-day workers exactly their mutually agreed-upon wage. If he decides to pay other workers more, that's completely up to him. He is sovereign, and it is his discretion to be as generous as he wants to be. He can distribute his gifts however and to whomever he sees fit. But the workers were not happy to recognize that. They thought they knew better. They wanted a different scale, a different calculus. They thought that they themselves wanted to be in charge of distributing the sovereign's generosity. And we too often fail to recognize the rights of our master. We can look around and see how our great master has been generous to others, and we can complain, begrudge, even malign God himself. Why did that guy get the promotion? Doesn't management know what kind of guy he is? Why does this guy get all the attention? I'm the one that does all the work. Why didn't my project get the green light? Don't they know how many hours I've put into this? And we even do this at church. Why does that person seem to get all the blessings? Their family, their whole family has good health. I can't go a week without chronic pain. Why does that woman seem to have everything together? The perfect marriage, the always clean house, children that behave, and a well-respected husband. Why does that guy get to do all the fun jobs, but I'm stuck over here doing the dirty work that nobody sees and nobody appreciates? Why does that guy get all the gifts from God, but I get so few? We see the generosity of God displayed in the lives of others, and instead of praising God for His bounty and generosity, we complain that we aren't getting our share. We fail to trust and to honor God as the sovereign vineyard owner that dispenses His gracious gifts as He sees fit. We buck against His sovereignty. We malign it. We disdain it. And when we can't do anything about it, which is all the time, We whine about it, and we complain about it, even though we ourselves have been the recipients of so much grace. Thank the Lord, thank God, that Christ never pushed back against His Father's sovereignty. He didn't rail against the Father, complaining about the Apostle's good fortune. Imagine, Christ Himself, the perfect, sinless one, hanging, bloodied, and beaten on the cross... If there were ever a moment for someone to complain about the good fortune of the undeserving and the unfair treatment of the righteous, it was that moment. But for our sake, he willingly endured the cross. He submitted himself to the Father's plan, a plan that was to take the undeserving and to lavishly bless upon them that which they could never earn, to grant them the the grace of faith 
and repentance, to grant them a restored relationship with God, to grant them the gift of the Holy Spirit and the grace of holiness, to grant them, one day, the grace of eternal life in a perfected body in the new heavens and the new earth. That was God's plan, to give such bountiful blessings to such complaining and discontented subjects as ourselves. Such is the goodness of our sovereign Lord. In His sovereignty, He has chosen to bless us instead of giving us what we've actually earned, which was death. Praise God that our sovereign Lord is a good Lord and that He has chosen to bless us in Christ with every heavenly blessing. Third, not only did the workers have a self-righteous spirit and not only did they fail to recognize the rights of the landowner, they were also exposed as having loathsome, envious hearts. They had loathsome, envious hearts. They were discontent. Even though they had received the wage that they had agreed upon with the landowner. Do you see the irony there? They were happy about the arrangement at the beginning of the day. And at the end of the day, at the execution of the arrangement, they were bitter. What had changed? The envy of their hearts had been revealed. They were not only dissatisfied with what they themselves had received, they were also perhaps even especially envious of what had been given to others. Their grievance amounts to this. In spite of the fact that we have worked much longer than these latecomers and have toiled under conditions that were far more oppressive, look at what you did for them. How generously you treated them. Rather than being happy for the men that were blessed with more, they were jealous. And we fall prey to this jealousy in our lives too. We've danced around it a little bit with the previous points, but this is the root of many, many sins. Covetousness, envy. And it has two elements. We see, we see somebody, somebody else has something, gets something, gets some reward, some possession, some status, some blessing, and we want that. We, we desire what they have, and that desire is not necessarily evil. For example, if I see somebody in the church and they're really wise, and I want that, I want to be wise, so I I devote myself to studying the scriptures and to praying to God so that I can seek after wisdom. Desire itself is a good thing in that case. But the second component of envy is what makes it especially heinous. It's the resentment that we feel towards someone else. Things are going well for them and they're not going well for me and I want things to go well for me and poorly for them. We don't merely want to share in what they have. We begin to resent them for what they have. We even want them to lose what they have. That's not fair. I want justice. Perhaps you felt this. Maybe you were best friends with someone, spent lots of time together. But now that person's getting married and you begin to resent them for that. You feel like you're losing your friend, you're losing out, and you're envious because you're not getting married like they are. 
And perhaps you express that resentment by just pushing them away, cutting them off. Or maybe you think about your child, how they're always getting sick, but you see another couple's children and they're never sick and their kids always get good grades and they seem to be a dream to be parenting, to be parented. You resent them for their perfect children. This envy creeps up in many situations. We see it when someone's prettier than us or has a prettier spouse than us. When somebody makes more money than us, someone has a nicer house, a nicer car than us, a better job than us. It even creeps up in the church. So-and-so gets to sing more than me. That's not fair. So-and-so gets to teach more than me. So-and-so has better gifts than me, is a better encourager than me, is more hospitable than me. And we begin to resent them. We're unhappy with who we are. We begin to put our unhappiness on others. The Bible warns very clearly against this kind of envy. Galatians 5.21 lists envy among the sins of the flesh. And it concludes with a sober warning. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let the weight of that upon you. If you are envious and you do not battle against your envy, you do not seek to put to death the remaining envy that is in your heart, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what today's parable is about. God's kingdom. That means that if you love your envious heart more than you love God and love holiness, then you will be like one of the laborers that was in the marketplace. You will be without hope, without a way to feed yourself and to survive. And God will not grant you a wage of hope. He will not save you out of your envious state. But the good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for us to be saved from our envy. He has sent His Son to live the perfect life of contentment. He himself was tempted to be envious, but chose not to do so. He could have looked out from the cross and envied the comfort of those apostles standing around him who were not sharing in the pain. But he chose contentment over envy, even during terrible suffering. He was perfectly content with the will of his Father, content with his lot in life, content with the painful fate that was chosen for him, content with the beatings, the scourging, the crown of thorns, the mocking, the shameful death that he was given. That is the Christ that was given for you. And he has made a way for you to be forgiven. Even though you so often choose envy over contentment in him. He was content in his death so that you might be content in his life. Choose to turn away from your envy and turn to the contented Christ who loved you so much that he was content to die so that you might be set free from the curse of envy. It is only in Christ that we can truly be set free from the envy that clings so close. Finally, verse 16 of our parable concludes, The last will be first, and the first 
will be last. If you'll notice, you look closely, this is the inversion of chapter 19, verse 30, that we read at the beginning. That 19, verse 30, says that the first will be last and the last will be first. The principle is the same, but in our parable about the vineyard, he's illustrating that the laborers that came last were made to be first. This is the principle of God's kingdom, a principle so simple that a child can grasp it, but a principle that takes a lifetime to learn. The lowest will be made the highest. The last will be made first. The first will be made last. The lowly will be exalted. The proud will be humbled. The weak will be made strong, and the strong will be made weak. We must remember not to position ourselves as the first, but to humble ourselves and seek to be last. For this is exactly what our great Christ has done for us. Look down in chapter 20, verse 20, let's see, 28. Nope. Yes, verse 28. Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is what the Son has done for us. He became last, and the Father made him the firstborn among many brothers. And in Christ, we have the freedom to become last. And by doing so, because of our union with him, we are united with the firstborn. By becoming last, we become the first. May that be ever true of us in the church. And if you do not know what it means to come to Christ, it means to count the cost, to look at the things you will have to give up. To come to Him by faith is costly. He's asking you to become the last. But it is so worth it. The gift that we have in Christ, the grace that is made possible through faith and turning away from our sins makes us lowly in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of God, it makes us one of His sons. And that's what it means to be first. Let's pray. Our sovereign Lord, our great Father in heaven, Father, we confess to you that so often we clamor and claw our ways to try and be the first, try and be the best, try and look the best in the eyes of our friends, to try and sound the smartest, to try and look the brightest and the prettiest. Father, I pray that you would crucify that temptation in our hearts, that you would send your Holy Spirit to mold us more into the image of your Son every day, who was content to be last, and by doing so was made first. Father, make us last in this life, that we might be made first in your kingdom. Help us to be like Christ. I ask this in his name. Amen.